0: malachi chapter 2 verse 17 chapter 3 verse 5 you have wearied the lord with your words but you say how have we wearied him by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the lord and he delights in them or by asking where is the god of justice behold i send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, The widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word.
1: A Presbyterian missionary named Hope Masterton Waddell was stranded for 10 days on Grand Cayman in January of 1845. Now this is on the screen up here, this is actually not a picture of uh, Hope Waddell. Uh, this is just how I envision anyone who's British with the middle name Masterton. Right. <laughs> you think he forgot to uh, fold down his turtleneck? And that thing's just going straight up. Unbelievable. Maybe it's a neck sleeve. I'm not sure, but that's I just picked it off the internet. I thought it looked like him. Anyhow, uh, his ship wrecked uh, on the East End Reef. Here in Grand Cayman while carrying himself and his family back to England after serving as a missionary for 15 years in Jamaica, and he was going around the bout, back around Cuba. Here's his description of what happened. The breakers were raging and foaming around us as far as the eye could see ahead, and on both sides, while the vessel was beating and tearing on rocks scarcely below the surface of the water, there we sat patiently waiting on the Lord. It was grievous to feel and heal the straining of the poor whip on the rocks as the swell of the sea lifted it up and cast it down again with a crash that made everything seem to split into pieces. When the day dawned, a small, low island was visible at some distance. Ere long, to our great joy, canoes were seen coming off the shore what a benevolent people, I said. See how they hasten to our help. The captain looked at me and said, Wreckers, that must be their trade. He pointed to anchors, chain cables, and the like. A fleet of canoes was making for us and soon surrounded our helpless craft when a host of men sprang up the sides like pirates or boarders greedy for prey. The head man advancing toward the captain with one word of pity, and two of business agreed to take everything ashore on the usual terms of half for their trouble. After spending on the island, time on the island, days later, one woman said to him about the lack of fertile soil in Cayman. She said, sweet potatoes will grow in some parts, and we all go fishing to supply the English ships. But to tell you the truth, sir, our main dependence is on the wrecks. And we all thank God when a ship grounds ashore." <laughs> Oh, uh, yes. Any, any and everywhere, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? People profiting from the suffering and misfortune of others. In some cases, as here, even thanking God for the costly profit. And we're left to ask, oftentimes, oh, where's the justice in that? We're continuing our journey through the book of Malachi. Which predominantly, this book, this last book of the Old Testament, predominantly consists of the questions that God's people have, the raw questions they have, and God's answers in response to those questions. And it's organized into four disputes. Four disputes. There was a dispute that people had over love. There was a dispute, secondly, people had over service, how they were to serve the Lord. Thirdly, there's a dispute over right relationships. So, that's where we just finished. Talking about right relationships. throughout most of chapter 2. So, we looked at the question, why can't we all just get along? And what we discovered was, through God's word, that conflict has less to do with what we are doing and how we are being together. And more about what we worship while we're apart from each other. And so, the, the idols that we bring into conflict... Or bring into situations and confrontations are often what causes conflict. We talked about the covenant. We have a God who, who builds relationships with people through covenants. And last week we considered, why God do you not accept my sacrifice of prayer? Why don't you hear me, Lord? And God basically says, look at your marriage. There's a lack of faithfulness to your spouse. So your prayers fall on deaf ears. Fourth dispute We're going to be in today our final dispute, all right, and that is over what is just and fair. God's people don't feel like He's being fair, and our question this morning is this: Where's the justice in the world around us? Where is the justice? Now, the way in which God's people, the Jewish people, ask this question is sort of doubly alarming. They're not just as they're not just saying, "Look." God, I I see around me evil people prosper. Why aren't you doing something about it? They're not simply asking that. But they're asking, why, why God are you the active patron of evil? You are like the behind the scenes supporter of evil, right? Verse 17, they're stating, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. He delights in them. Having said this, That question of why do the wicked prosper is a legitimate complaint. It's a legitimate complaint that believers, people who have faith in Christ, can pose to God. And it's a major objection to belief that pre-Christians, those who don't yet believe in God, and, and that they ask believers to respond to, God's so good, why do good things happen to bad people? How do we typically respond to this? Usually we don't. We don't. And on one level, that's the right response because there's no biblical statement that comprehensively explains the problem of evil and why this happens. Nor is there an airtight sort of explanation in philosophy and archaeology and science and history that can explain why this occurs. However, on another level, we can and should respond because God responds as he does here in Malachi. And by the way, not just here. There's a couple other real interesting places where Jesus addresses this question. John chapter 9 is a great place. Look at that if you want to at some point. Also, Luke 13 is a fascinating account. But here, God responds to the question, where's the justice in this way? Justice is a person who transforms injustice in its most common habitat. Who thirdly will execute final justice. So that's where we're going this morning. Justice is a person who transforms injustice in its most common habitat and will execute final justice. So let's start from the beginning here. Justice is a person. We're going to go right through this passage. Let's start in verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold... He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God will send a messenger. This messenger is referring to a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the first prophet back on the scene after Malachi. It's Malachi and almost 500 years of silence. He prepares the way for the Messiah, for Christ. Secondly, we see the Lord will come to his temple. Now, this is important because in Malachi's time, there were basically no reports. There were no rumors going around about God's manifestations of glory coming to his temple. Now, in the old days, back in the day, their ancestors would see this. In the temple, God would manifest his glory at different times and seasons. But in these latter days, it just did not happen. It was just dead. It's like going to, you know, I hate to put this analogy, it's like going to a dead church. Alright, right, we're not beyond that without the Spirit of the Lord. But it's like going to a church where you, you know, you you get a sermon with some moral platitude about being a good person. You sing a few hymns. You have a potluck every once in a while. You go home and live your life the way you always lived it. This is kind of what the temple was like at this point. like the worship was like. And so, for them to hear that, that the Lord would come to his temple, oh man, we want that. And that person would be Jesus the Lord. He would not only come to his temple, he would become the temple. Do you remember what he said? I'll destroy the temple. And you're thinking he was an anarchist, right? You're going to destroy the temple. What? And then after three days, he calls it to rise again. Jesus became the temple. And so now we have access to God, not in a temple through rituals and sacrifice and this and that, but anywhere at any time through Christ. Finally, he talks about this messenger of the covenant. And the messenger of the covenant would tell us about God's new covenant that we could approach the father of justice directly. And this is so important because justice came in a person, the person of Christ, because we can directly go to the judge and the jury. I want to clarify something here. This is the, the, the difference that Jesus makes. Many other religions appeal to a concept or a doctrine to help when you're experiencing injustice. Like Buddhism appeals to detachment from the world as a, way, as a means of ridding oneself of injustice. You gradually become detached from it. Or it gives attempts to get justice through the manipulation of fickle gods uh, like Wicca, which has become more popular in recent years, or neo-paganism. Or they appeal to an impersonal god who will sort of arbitrarily weigh good and evil deeds on this scale of justice. Few of those things I mentioned are well and good, but when you and I are in real trouble, we appeal to a person for help. Right? So when my sons get their limbs or their heads stuck between pieces of furniture in our house, which by the way occurs far more frequently, I find, than it should. (laughs) They don't try to detach their mind from the world to release themselves from suffering right? No, they cry out, Dad! Daddy, a little help! And sometimes I say, you can get out of it yourself, son. Let this be a learning lesson. Other times I rescue them, you know, depending on the situation. But they ask for a person. If you're a female lost in a patriarchal third world city and it's getting dark outside, right? You don't simply repeat a phrase you learned at the power of positive thinking seminar. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. People like me. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. People like me. Right? No. You look for a trustworthy person who can help you. God saw injustice from people made in his image towards fellow image bearers. Other people. And injustice toward himself. So he sent a person. Justice is a person. is Christ. Who transforms injustice in its most common habitat. I'm going to explain what I mean here. Verses 2 through 4, chapter 3, we're going to talk about. During the time of the prophets when God's people lived, they had this favorite phrase. And I was trying to think of the equivalent of this. I didn't come up with a perfect idea. But it's sort of like the phrase, we're going to Disney World. All right? So, you know, this is it. Like, I repeat to our children, like, if you're going to Disney World with your kids at some point, you make that trek, which is a difficult trek. We've made it one time. Uh, it's expensive. Right, but you, To get them excited about something, we're going to Disney World, right? They had this phrase. It was like, we are going to some great place and everything's going to be alright. And that was a phrase called the day of the Lord. People wanted the day of Yahweh, or it says here in verse 2, the day of his coming. They just wanted it to come. They longed for this day when the Messiah would come to right all the wrongs done to them. And to bring justice where there was injustice that was done to them. They longed for this day. God's people thought it was going to be this magic pill, like this would kind of just solve everything for us. And God knew that. And so he says to his people here in verse 2, he says, look though, let me ask you a question. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Now God's people would probably say, well, not those meanies. You know, who, who interrupt me all the time and talk badly about me behind my back. And God, God is like, no, really think about this. You're saying you're pure enough, you're holy enough, you're just enough to endure my coming? The God of all the universe? Remember, your ancestors, when they thought I was coming or when there was even a hint of my presence, they would kneel down, cover their faces, and assume it was their last breath. But you're going to be all right see where I'm going with this the injustice is me notice in verse 3 and 4 how God first goes after God first goes after all those who do ill who do wickedness in society right the sorcerers against the adulterers against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages against the widow and the fatherless oh wait that's verse 5 let's back up to verse 3 who does he first seek out? Not those people who ravage society. He will purify the sons of Levi, verse 3, and refine them like gold and silver. The sons of Levi were the Old Testament priests. So God first goes after the religious. He goes after the religious people who claim refuge in his name. Why? Well, first of all, I believe it's because God wants to do justice in uh, in us and use us as agents for justice as a taste of what his final justice will be like. And then of course we get the final verse 5 where there'll be ultimate justice, right? When Jesus returns. But also I think it's because you know these God's people they ask God, look, what's with all the injustice? But they didn't look close enough at their own hearts. To ask the question, what's with all the injustice in me? I want to tell you a little story about one of the wisest sort of prophets of the 20th century. He's kind of had that prophetic spirit of speaking a right word at the right time. In the early 20th century, his name's uh, G.K. Chesterton. This is British, by the way. British Sunday. I make all my references and jokes are British, that he was British. So uh, that's for you. I'm just trying to be multinational. Near the beginning of World War II, during the rise of Lenin and the campaign of Red Terror, the London Globe printed an editorial that asked the simple question, it posed a simple question. What is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? They asked readers to respond to it. And responses poured in. It gave various causes for what is wrong with the world, from from the fields of politics, ideology, science, uh, philosophy, even religion, covered two pages of newsprint. And at the conclusion, at the bottom sort of right-hand corner of the last page, was a one-word response to what is wrong with the world, where Chesterton replied simply, me. What is wrong with the world? Me. He signed it, GK. The first habitat, the natural place in which we first find and should identify injustice is ourselves, friends. Yet, I know I find I'm so slow to identify injustice in myself, to identify sin, to identify rebellion, to identify unfairness in me. Recently, I asked someone hey, you know, just a simple question how are things? And they replied. They opened up a little bit. They said, well, I'm fine. I'm fine, but my marriage is giving me trouble. Can you relate to that? Can you, like me, relate to that response? I know at some point I've given this response when someone asks me how I'm doing. But, friends, marriage itself cannot hurt you. Your marriage certificate doesn't come alive as a sort of demigod and drive a wedge between you and your spouse. All right? You know, let's be clear, though. I'm okay... But this static concept, which has no real power, right, is rearing its ugly head in my life. Marriage itself cannot give you trouble. Your own heart can give you trouble. You know what I'm saying? We suddenly just say these things, I think, and we start to believe them. Oh, you know, it's the circumstance. It's just, it's just, you know, things. Nothing to do with me. I'm okay. You know what I mean? Marilyn McCord's Adams once said, continual repentance is the best contribution anyone can make towards solving the problem of evil. What does that mean? Identifying and confessing rebellion, injustice towards God, and turning to him for forgiveness is the best solution for starting to curb the problem of injustice, the problem of evil in our world. That's when God begins to transform injustice into justice. Also known as becoming more like Jesus as we depend on him. Look with me in verse 2, second half of verse 2. For God, he is like a refiner's fire, he's like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Let me give you a quick explanation here. Uh, For those of you who are not into metallurgy, uh, gold was melted. This time, gold was melted and refined by heating it in this clay crucible. Sort of like a tank, where intense heat would cause impurities in the gold to rise to the surface, which the goldsmith would then skim off The top of the surface. The impurities will be skimmed off the top of the surface. And that reason God is using this analogy reason why Malachi is using this analogy here is because God uses a heat to purify us. What is that heat? Usually, typically, it's the heat of external injustices and external suffering to purge the injustice in our own hearts. We don't like it. We don't enjoy it. But I was even thinking this week, I had a great week this week. You know, someone said something that made me think, oh man. And I don't want to think about this all the time because God is so gracious. But it just made me think for a minute, things are going real well. Am I really depending on God? You know what it's like when you go through suffering, you experience these injustices in your life, it forces you to go to God and ask Him for help. That's when we're compelled to depend on Him. I remember as a kid, you know, you learn so much, more than we'd like to believe from our moms and dads. I remember my father twice losing his job. Unjustly. I was growing up. My dad was an executive in the furniture business. High up. But he knew that God was getting his attention. He brought him low. But he realized God was getting his attention. Especially after the second bout of unemployment. And he was, God was using this injustice so that my dad might depend on him. Well he came out of that season of his life. Changed. His faith just shined like gold. And it forever has impacted my life. The way he lived in integrity. The way he started to treat other people. The humility in his life. You remember John the Baptist described his baptism as one of water. But after him would come someone who would baptize with fire. That fire he's talking about is a refining fire. Jesus would come into our lives and build a smoldering flame in our hearts to refine us, to make us more like him. The question is, is this a promise that delights you or one that causes you to have a lump in your throat? I'll leave you with that question on that one. Justice is a person who will transform injustice as his common habitat. And finally, thirdly, Who will execute final justice, i.e., drop the hammer. All right. There are usually two or three references to the day of the Lord. When you see the day of the Lord mentioned in the Old Testament here, it says the day of his coming. It's usually referring to at least two, often three things. The first one is a near future event in which God will deliver his people temporarily. Maybe it's from a locust plague, maybe it's from something else. But God will deliver his people. But it's also referring to either or, either the Messiah's arrival in achieving salvation for his people, or the Messiah's conclusive return to judge the living and the dead. So for instance, Jesus says in John 3, 17 of his of right, his first coming, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved through him. But then, not too long afterwards, John chapter 5, verse 27 through 29, the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment. Because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice. When he comes again. And they will come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. The latter is going on here in verse 5. It's not so much that the people did this particular wicked act. Or didn't do this righteous act. But notice what the key is. They didn't fear me. Says the Lord. Look at that in verse 5. They did not fear me. They did not trust me. They did not revere me. They didn't really see me as God of their lives. This is the final judgment. And you know, when you hear final judgment, I know it's it, it's it troubles us. Isn't God a God of mercy? But friends, I I gotta say this. I've said this once before. You can go back and listen more on this. There's a sermon from Luke 16, 19 through 31. Uh, back last year, still on the internet if you want to listen, talked about why hell is good. The fact is, hell is good. It was created by God. And I know that's hard to hear, but one of the reasons hell is good, and it's good to us personally in this life, is it satisfies an innate, an ingrained need for justice. We are all made in God's image. Genesis one twenty seven says, we're all made in God's image, so we find in us all of God's qualities but in a lesser degree. Much less degree. And also tarnished by sin. All right, a bit beat up by sin. God cares about justice and is just. So there's something innate in us who are image bearers that longs to see justice. It's why we thirst for justice when, when someone... It's why someone went to great lengths to film The Hanging of Saddam Hussein and then put it online. It was one of the most... You know, Watch videos in YouTube history. Because people want to see justice. It's why we all grieved when about a year ago this time, I was just thinking about this this week, when a four-year-old boy in West Bay was killed by gunfire. And justice is why, whether you agree with it or not, people immediately started talking about the death penalty days and weeks afterwards. A desire for justice. It's why even in prison, even hardened criminals seek out, and even kill people convicted of hurting children. Because even hardened convicts see the need for justice done towards helpless, injustice done towards helpless children. Hell is God's final grave for all injustice. Miroslav Volf, this really brilliant Christian theologian from Croatia, used to rage, used to despise the concept of God's wrath. He thought the idea of an angry God was, was archaic, barbaric, not befitting of God. But then, his country, Croatia, experienced a brutal war. People committed terrible atrocities against their neighbors, against their countrymen. And he wrote the following in his book, Free of Change. He said this, My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was the casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia. The region from where I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed and my people were shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond description or imagination. I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil and injustice. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love, God is wrathful because he is love. How are we going to seek to implement this into our lives? Because we ask the question all the time where is justice? How do we apply this? I'll give you three quick ways. In the midst of injustice, go to the person. By the way, sorry, I know that was a heavy topic I just talked about, but is there anything more insufferable than constant complaining? And I mean, have you ever said to yourself, there's only so many times I can hear my coworker talk about their broken coffee maker? Right? In light of my problems, there's only so I can't hear about your barista problems. Or, I can only pretend to care so much about the ninth reason you don't like the person you're dating. Is that you, by the way? you ever done that? Raise your hand, honestly. If so, if that's you, the Apostle Paul might remind you of a principle he mentions in Romans 7. And that is this. That which you typically hate the most is also the thing you typically do the most. ever notice that? The thing you tend to dislike in other people or in their actions is a thing that's often very present in your own life. Honestly, what did complaining ever accomplish? Complaining to a person ever accomplish? Unless that person can actually do something about it. That's why God gives us Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, present your request to God. That's why God gives us the Psalms to take that complaint directly to him. I want to embarrass someone this morning a little bit. All right, I'm not going to normally do this. I want to embarrass my friend in a good way, my friend James Rawcliffe over here. Uh, if you've ever talked to James, I don't regularly embarrass people. That's a bad sign, sorry. But you've likely, if you've ever talked to James, you've likely never heard a complaint uttered from this man's mouth. And Gretel, by the way, you don't count because you're married to him. Alright, so if you I know you are allowed to hear complaints, but you know, everybody else. You want to know what that is? It, whenever I talk to James about anything related to his relationship with God, he almost always includes something about his being honest with God. He talks about, you know, if I'm struggling to deal with something, if I'm struggling with what seems like an injustice, I lock horns with God, I pour out my heart, I bring my complaint before him, and he straightens me out. He sets me straight. But of course, since James is British and he refuses to talk like the rest of the English-speaking world, uh, he puts it something like this. It's more like, I net with the Lord, having a bit of a row or a whinge until he helps me suss it out. He says something like that, which I have no idea what it means, and he interprets it for me. You know that's true. (laughs) But here's the point. He goes first to God with his complaint. He puts the complaint into the right hands so it doesn't go into our ears. Go first to the person. The person. Also embrace God's transforming you as you rely on him in the midst of injustice. As you rely on him, you'll not only change to become more like Christ, you'll forever respond differently to injustice. What do I mean? Two ways you'll respond differently to injustice. Grace and humility when injustice happens to you. Think of that missionary earlier I mentioned. Basically, Waddell laughed. He was able to laugh when locals pillaged his belongings right, and sold them on the streets. And he lovingly listened to a woman who prayed for ships like his to be wrecked. He even since she she was a good woman. I didn't mention that part, but she a good woman came up to me. I wouldn't say a good woman necessarily. But he saw that God had a deeper purpose in this injustice happening to him. And indeed, indeed, he did have a deeper purpose. Not only did he, cre- you know, form him to become more like Christ, but he actually was instrumental in identifying some of the needs for the church and for education in came in. God used him. Second way we can respond differently in the midst of injustice, instead of theoretical posturing, you get a heart that breaks for others. Now, there's nothing wrong with wondering, man, why does God let this happen to me? Why does God let this happen to me? Why does God let other people? But your, your response does slowly begin to change when you see injustice happen. It's just a way of your heart breaks for people. God gives you tenderness of heart and compassion. You pray for them. You attend to their needs. Lastly, how do you apply this? How do you apply God's justice in a person as a response to injustice. Well, proclaim the cross of Christ as the wisest, most sufficient solution to the problem of injustice. Friends, there is nothing like it. I don't ever want to tire of talking about this. It's brilliant. We have rebelled against God. All of us. I have rebelled against God. A holy God. He's perfect. Now, God... You could argue you could save us by loving us, sending a person through Jesus. Couldn't Jesus just die on the cross and that's the way he saves us? Like, it doesn't matter who he was or what he did. No, because God is just. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. Jesus had to live a perfect life so he could die in our place and take on that wrath, take on God's judgment, take on the justice we deserved. Justice was satisfied so that mercy could be extended let's pray Lord this question is a difficult one Father we just wanted to look at what your word says about it this morning where's the justice in our world today and Jesus you have come in your person to bring it you brought it ultimately on the cross you gave us glimpses of justice in your life in your ministry when you healed people when you brought people back from the dead You wept because of the injustice, Lord. And ultimately, He died for it. Jesus, we are so thankful that you did. Now we can forever go to you. Go to the Father with our plea for justice. Lord, we shared some humorous examples this morning, but I know that a number of us are dealing with injustices that are breaking our hearts, Lord. That are tearing apart our lives that are consuming our thoughts day in and day out. We can go to a God who cares about that justice. Who will deal with it and often intervene in life to take care of it. Or He'll allow it to sit and stay in our lives so that through it He might help us become more like Jesus. But ultimately we know who will finally deal with injustice forever. We praise that God. And Lord... Father, Yahweh, you are that God. We give thanks and praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.